16 in the series on the mystery of human suffering. We're entitling the message today, Rewarded for Faithful Service. Rewarded for Faithful Service. We have started out in grade one, finding the origin of human suffering. We've worked our way upward through the various grades of understanding, through the stage of Christian suffering. And in the last several messages, we've been focusing upon the compensation that shall be given unto believers for their loss here in this life and how it will be granted to them in the life to come. Whatever we are called upon to sacrifice and deny ourselves, our Lord promises that we will not be the losers for that, but we will find it and will be rewarded a hundredfold, even beyond our imagination in the world to come. I have several passages of Scripture which we'll call your attention to. I'm not sure whether they are on the back of the bulletin or not. Are they? They are, all right? You want I'd advise you to look at that. It will save time rather than having to locate them in the Bible and then have your Bibles open as we move through the study this morning. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 5.10 But we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Luke 19.17 he said unto them, Well done, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of of thy Lord. We've read and chosen these particular passages of Scripture to try to set forth a balanced presentation in the Scripture between salvation by grace and rewards based upon faithfulness. We are now coming to the climax of our study on human suffering. We have learned that Christians will be rewarded in the life to come based upon their faithfulness, particularly in sufferings in this present life. We have discovered that the chief end of God in creating man was not merely to save man, but to place redeemed men and women in positions of administrating the affairs of the new heaven and the new earth. And before these individuals can be placed in these positions... They must first have their characters developed so that they can be trusted to abide in and remain faithful when placed in those roles. 
And God will do this through the process of trials and sufferings. When this process is completed, they will enter into their eternal reward. Then they will possess a character that will, number one, manifest a willingness to live under God's authority. Number two, a willingness to serve others. And number three, a willingness to always choose that which will honor and glorify God. Jesus clearly, plainly, and repeatedly taught that some would be great and some would be least in the kingdom of heaven based on their conduct here in this life. His teachings on greatness in the kingdom, we found, is in direct contrast to what is considered greatness in the kingdom that is ruled by Satan in this world. In Satan's kingdom, those are considered great who rule over others by having others serve them. In Christ's kingdom, he considers those to be great who rule by serving others. We looked at three prescriptions for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. First, there is humility or submission unto God's authority. Secondly, there is servanthood or serving others rather than oneself. And thirdly, there is self-denial and sacrifice in whatever God calls upon you to do. I ask this question, what does it cost to become great in the kingdom of heaven? It'll cost you the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the biblical answer to that. The fight precedes the victory. The cross precedes the crown. Proverbs 15.33 says, Before honor is humility. Jesus motivated His disciples to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven based upon these principles of greatness. There are about 25 occasions in the New Testament which clearly teach that believers will be rewarded in heaven according to their faithfulness shown here on earth. There are also degrees of punishment in hell. Some will be beaten with many stripes, and some with few, as taught by Jesus in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. The wicked will merit the level of punishment in hell, which they have treasured up against the day of wrath, when God will Render to every man according to his deeds. Romans 2, 5, and 6. Now then, I must deal with the subject of the relationship between God's grace and human merit. After having seen that Jesus used these principles of rewards to motivate his followers to service, we must now deal with the issue of merit. If the Bible teaches both salvation by grace 
and rewards based upon faithfulness, then we must affirm both and yet exclude the idea of human merit. Can we get that done? That has been a difficult task in church history. We must also determine the nature of the rewards, what they shall be, and what the motivation is for attaining them. And in order to achieve this balance, we must understand the way in which the Word of God harmoniously blends together God's sovereignty with man's duty or responsibility. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that God elected His people from the foundation of the world. Christ loved them and redeemed them, making them a kingdom of priests. The Spirit of God regenerates them unto spiritual life, and they are preserved by His grace to the end. Do you agree with that? That's what the Bible teaches. There's another side of the coin. On the other hand, these individuals are called upon to repent. They are called to faith. They are called to live a life of dedicated devotion to God. They are called to persevere in holiness and to be faithful even unto death, if necessary. This is the call of Christ to these individuals. And this faithfulness qualifies them to share with Christ in ruling the universe in the world to come. Nevertheless, no merit or no boasting can exist on their part, because it was God who predestinated them for this from the very start. And it was Christ, through the Holy Spirit, who achieves it and works it within them. We should never try to separate these two lines of activity, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which are so perfectly blended together in Scripture so as to put one against the other. A brief reference the church history will be helpful, perhaps, in setting the context for the subject. Suffering was predominant in the lives of the early church and resulted in the martyrdom of multitudes. By the third century, the martyrs had become so highly esteemed by the Roman Catholic Church that the Roman Catholic Church raised them to the rank of sainthood. Eventually, the death of the martyrs was looked upon as having the same, now listen, atoning value as the death of Christ. These who died as martyrs were said to have the same power to forgive sins and to mediate between individuals and God. And this fully developed in the fourth century. Alongside of this development, of this theology to sainthood, 
the Roman Catholics developed a theology of merit and of meritorious works based on the Scriptures which we are dealing with, which speak of special positions in heaven which are to be given. When the Protestant reformers broke with the Catholic Church, they set forth the theology of salvation by grace alone. They believed that they had to completely exclude the idea of merit and meritorious works. And I affirm that. But some of these theologians in the Protestant history believed that in order to do so, they had to exclude the idea of rewards in heaven. They thought that they could not speak of rewards without implying that the rewards had to be given as a payment for a debt for the work done and thus something which had to be earned. Moreover, if the idea of rewards is rejected, then one would have to show that in heaven all of the redeemed will be equal in rank and honor. And thus a number of the Reformed theologians wrote books refuting the idea of rewards in heaven and that God's grace levels everybody else out together to where everybody is equal in rank and honor in heaven. Of course, what follows then from that position is the logical conclusion that a judgment according to works or deeds is meaningless. You get that? It is only in the context of rewards based on works or faithfulness that a judgment makes any sense at all. Why have a judgment? The end result is that in today's churches, there exists the idea that grace and works are incompatible and that one must believe in one or in the other. And thus, some believers are raised in churches in which salvation by grace through faith alone is taught, and they are never exposed to the concept of rewards in heaven since they are taught that all will be equal in heaven. Meanwhile, other churches are exposed to the concept that, listen, one's righteousness before God and their reward in heaven is based either upon their own righteousness or a mixture of Christ's imputed righteousness and their own righteousness. They are never exposed to salvation by grace through faith alone. But we have two classes here, and whatever your background is, in all likelihood you have been raised in one of two, those two traditions. Now, there's a tendency for two errors to develop in these two groups of professing Christians. In the grace alone group, Antinomianism, or lawlessness, can develop since it is concluded that works, whether they be good or bad, have no effect in the life to come. Therefore, there's a danger in that group of 
developing a careless, flippant attitude toward dedication and living to God. The other group, meanwhile, faces the error of legalism, wherein it is concluded that since their entrance into the kingdom and their positions therein are determined by their own deeds, they must provide a life of obedience to God which will merit them favor with God. So you have antinomianism in one group and legalism showing up in the other group. That does not mean that everybody in each of those groups fall into that. But that is the error which each group can lead into and get into the ditch over here, and one group gets in the ditch over here on this side of the road. There is a third position, though, which existed prior to the Reformation. It existed during the Reformation, and it now continues after the Reformation, and it is the one which I am setting forth in this series. It is simply put, now listen carefully, I've worded this carefully, our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based upon Christ's objective work for us resulting in our justification and our legal standing before God, so that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The entrance into the kingdom is based upon Christ's work for us. Now listen carefully. Our inheritance in the kingdom is based upon Christ's work through the Holy Spirit resulting in our sanctification of character so that we enter into the kingdom by grace through faith. And what we will inherit in that kingdom to come is based upon how we have responded to the Spirit's work within us in developing our character. And the Spirit's instrument is primarily trials and suffering. With these things in mind, we're now ready to see how God's grace and man's responsibility to obey coincide with each other as they relate to the believer's inheritance or rewards in heaven. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 19, and verses 16 through 26. Let your eyes glance upon that passage for a moment. We're not going to read it in its entirety for time's sake. In this passage, we have the account of Jesus and the rich young ruler. When the young ruler realized what it would cost to follow Christ, he left in sorrow. At this point, Peter then asked Jesus a question in verse 27. He says, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? We've left our jobs. We've left our reputation. Some of us have left families. We've left and we have denied ourselves to serve you what shall we have, therefore? Surprisingly, as we saw last week, Jesus did not rebuke him for inquiring about a reward for his sacrifice 
as we would probably have done. On the contrary, Jesus proceeded to tell Peter exactly what the reward of the apostles would be in verse 28. They would sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This same discussion was repeated at the Last Supper in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30. Do not turn there. But Jesus' statement or answer to Peter's question is that the apostles would be granted the highest positions of honor and service in the kingdom. Christ would be on the main throne and the apostles would be up close to him. Now, that's an answer to Peter's question. But I want you to look down in verse 29 of Matthew 19. Jesus went on to say that not only the apostles, but, quote, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a what? Did I hear you? a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Here Jesus is assuring that his followers that have been willing to sacrifice and lose their shelter, their families, their property in the service of Christ will be compensated a hundred times greater than any loss in which they have sustained. I'm thinking about thoughts running through my mind, not in my notes, Ted Turner's statement that Christianity is for losers. That's true. But he that loses his life will find it. Get it? not by gaining the whole world. It's by giving up what you love the most if you're called upon to do it. God will compensate it with a far greater income and gain than what any of us have ever sacrificed. Put that down. That's coming. It's coming. That's encouraging, Dana. The word inherit in verse 29 is an interesting word in that it indicates the moment when the children of God will be put in charge of their possessions given to them by the Father. Turn over to 1 Peter 1.4. 1 Peter 1.4. Peter uses this term inherit here. When he says to the suffering saints that they have a what? Does it give you enough time to find it? What does Peter say to these suffering saints that they have? What is it? An inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved where? In heaven for you. The saints to whom Peter is writing, had already entered the kingdom. 
But they were yet to receive their inheritance. It is one thing to enter into eternal life or spiritual life, the knowledge of God, and it's another thing to inherit something in that life. Now, since the idea of a reward involves compensation for services rendered, a common conclusion is assumed that when one speaks of rewards, one is implying that merit was acquired for the services provided. That's just a common deduction and a conclusion. And I believe that's why we have ended up in two camps out here. I believe this is due to a mistaken idea flowing from the master-servant or master-slave relationship which is often referred to by Jesus Christ. This master-servant or master-slave relationship that is referred to in the Bible has been taken to describe that of an employer-employee relationship in which the employer is obligated to pay the employed servant the wages or the rewards which he has earned or merited. And I believe we have taken this master-slave concept in the Bible and we have developed an employee-employer relationship in modern times and have superimposed that back upon the Scripture. And therefore, we are saying then that the only way that when you talk about rewards, it's got to be something in which that the employer is obligated to pay what the employee has earned. This is a mistake. The servant in the Bible, you with me, is not an employee, but a slave. And the slave had no freedom to negotiate a fee for his labor. That's why he was a slave. The employee-employer relationship, there's a negotiation. I'll give you $5 an hour, you do this, this job. The master never negotiated with the slave for the labor. The master-slave relationship is one in which the master owns the labor of the slave in an unconditional manner. The service to which the slave is duty-bound to perform is not his to choose. He must obey the command of the master. He simply has to do what he's told to do. It is the slave's duty to be faithful to the commands of his master. This means then that slaves can never claim or merit any wages or rewards. 
Did it? When the slave has finished his day's work, he cannot go into his master and say, where's my paycheck? After the slaves have done everything their owners have commanded, they can only say, we are unworthy or unrewardable slaves, possessing no right No merit, for we have not gone beyond our obligation, but we have merely done what our duty was to do. That's all a slave can do. Now, while the slave is obligated to his duty to the master, the master is not under any obligation to compensate the work done by the slave. I've used that word obligation. The master is not obligated to pay the slave anything. However, if the master is a kind and a generous and a loving master, he may graciously choose to freely reward or compensate his slave. doesn't have to, but he can if he wants to. And thus, whatever the master may give the slave, the slave inherits as a free gift and not as wages earned. And the reward flows from the master's free and gracious generosity, not from his obligation. I hope you catch that, because if you don't, the remainder is not going to fit in well. The reward flows from the Master's free and gracious generosity, and not from his obligation to the slave. I say this in passing too. God is never indebted to any creature. But creatures are indebted to God. Get it? Now this is clearly taught in the parable on service by Jesus recorded in Luke 17. And I do ask you to turn there. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. This is an important section, so I'm going to give you time to locate it. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, very close to the original King James here. Which of you, having a servant, or the word better translated slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? 
I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are what? We're unprofitable or unrewardable servants or slaves. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, beloved, that's from the lips of the Master. All right? After the slave has performed his day's work, the Master is under no obligation to invite him to dinner or to even say thank you. But, but, and I thank God that there is a but here, but, if the master chooses to be generous, he may be generous to his slave. We, as believers, are referred to in the Bible as Christ what? Bond slaves. We are duty-bound to serve him. We are indebted to him as our creator and as our redeemer. It is Christ who was the eternal Word who spoke and created all things, and that means me. I'm a thing. And it's Christ who came and died in my place and became my Redeemer. I am indebted, Brother Walter, to my Lord. Now, how am I to view Him then? Am I to view Him, Brother Asa, as this hard taskmaster out here who wants to choke everything he can get out of me and then throw me away and go buy another slave? Is that how the Bible reveals our Lord to us? He's the master. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, He that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a what? a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You remember Moses? He came to a point in his life in which he had to choose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why did he make that choice? For he considered the recompense the compensation of the reward that would be forthcoming. Read it, Hebrews chapter 11. He knew that whatever he suffered in loss by identifying with the Hebrew people and renouncing his Egyptian heritage and education, God would more than compensate that. Our Master has revealed Himself to be a great and generous Master who delights in giving to His slaves far more than they ever can give Him. When this is understood, I believe we can affirm that the believer's rewards for faithful duty are rooted in God's gracious generosity and not upon human merit. Enough with that. Now let's move to the concept of the nature of the believer's rewards. 
I believe now we're ready to enter into the highest point into our understanding of human suffering. And that being the question as to what is the nature of the believer's rewards. We're in the 12th grade now. If we want to stop grade 12 as being the climax of where our education uh, is, is, is ended. That's why we put it in your chart right in the middle of the puzzle. It's not something that you can understand if you put it out here on the edge of the puzzle of the mystery of human suffering. It must first be encompassed with all of this other data and information. One of the best explanations of this question is given to us by our Lord in the parable of the talents, as recorded in Matthew 24, verses 14 through 30. I again encourage you to turn there. What's our reward going to be? We are entrusted as slaves with certain duties and responsibilities. Now, how are we going to be compensated? In what way? I remember hearing a sermon years ago in a, in a meeting in which the individual was emphasizing the rewards and all the crowns that were going to be given, that if you did this, you get this crown. had about five crowns, had them all stacked up in your imagination there, and I got to thinking, boy, I'm going to need a real stiff neck if I get all five of those to wear those around in heaven, uh, being crowned. I'm afraid that, again, we go back to a literal carnal understanding of what the Bible is conveying to us in the world to come. Heaven's going to be a great place. It's a place that's described as a beautiful city. Uh, it's a place that the streets are gold and trees with fruit bearing on them and everything. Now, whether that is a literal description, remember that the symbol can only convey a portion of reality. The real thing is greater than the symbol, right? When we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is but an emblem, but the reality is far greater and the emblems of heaven and hell that are given to us in the Bible are far greater than what either of our imaginations can even begin to understand. Now, in this parable here of the talents in Matthew 24, the story is about a rich businessman who went away on a trip, probably a business trip. He has three slaves with whom he entrusts various amounts of money to oversee while he's away. Each slave was entrusted with the amount of money in which the businessman believed that the individual slave had the ability to oversee. Now, that's important. The businessman determined how many talents to give each one because they had proven themselves to different levels of competence as bookkeepers and, and businessmen themselves. Okay? One was given five talents, one two talents, and one was given one talent. Each slave knew what pleased his master and what their duty was to be achieved. 
while he was gone. Two of the slaves proved trustworthy. They invested their master's money and doubled the returns on his investment. Now, don't read the parable as if the slaves are making money for themselves. They are handling the master's money. They have been entrusted with his possessions. They own no possessions of their own. I'm going to have to watch it or I'm going to run over here today. But listen, say this in passing. You don't own a thing in this life. You don't own your wife, your husband, your family, your job, your health, everything. You don't own any of that. It's all borrowed. God owns it all. And He's entrusted you with the duty to oversee it. These things. And you'll give an account one day how you have handled what God has put in your trust. These who prove trustworthy did so because they loved their Master and wanted to glorify Him by pleasing Him and doing His will. The third slave was unfaithful, hid his portion in the ground, lest he lose it. Then he wouldn't have anything to give to his Master. He knew his Master was a rough, tough Master, and he'd make make it up everything that he'd lost. This slave did that because he did not love and trust his Master felt his master was unfair in asking more out of him than what he could provide. The slave was actually eventually described as a wicked slave and a lazy slave. Now, after a period of time, the master returns home and gathers the slaves together for a day of judgment, examination to determine their trustworthiness. The master's reply to the two faithful slaves gives us the answer as to what our reward shall consist of in heaven. Now, you want to know? This reply is going to give us the answer. He said to each of them, look down in verses 21 and 23, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a what? What is it? A few things. 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 Talents. Equal things. Okay? You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things or make you ruler of many things. Hmm? See the compensation? Secondly, enter into the joy of your master. Two things in the parable explain the nature and the content of the believer's rewards in heaven. First, we will be rewarded by being entrusted with and promoted to a higher degree of responsible service and duty. (laughs) How's that all right with you? Well, you thought perhaps... Well, I get through with all this hard service here when I get to heaven, then it'll be, I won't have anything to do. No, no. That's not the role of a slave. What shall we, we be rewarded with in heaven after a life of faithful duty and service here below? 
we will be promoted to positions in which there will be more responsibility and more duty and more opportunities to serve. I tell you, that wouldn't pop the balloon of the average American Christian today who has such carnal ideas of heaven that when they get there, they're going to get to crack the whip and make a whole bunch of other people do what they want them to do because they couldn't get them to do it here in this life. Nothing pleases God, Brother Asa, more than having a finite creature desirous of pleasing Him. Think about that. Nothing pleases God more than having one of His finite creatures desirous of pleasing Him. I will put you in charge of many things. See the connection? Now, the second description of the nature and contents is that we will have our joy intensified as we see how our Lord is pleased with our service. A slave or a servant's greatest joy is to please and glorify the Master. I ask you, do you have a slave's heart today? You that say you know the Lord, do you have the heart of a servant? The heart of a servant beats with enthusiasm as it gets the opportunity to obey and please its master. Now that's what you're going to be rewarded with in heaven. It's an intensified joy of pleasing the Master. What then is the chief end or duty of man? To glorify God. What reward does he receive in doing so? The ability to enjoy serving God forever and ever and ever. Enter thou into the what? The joy of your Lord. The Master was pleased with the faithful slaves and rejoiced with them in what they had accomplished. I think that we have to read this account not just with the black words on a page, but we've got to read it with the emotion that had to be here in this parable. Brother Dana, can you not just see the sparkle in the eyes of the two faithful slaves? Just like children opening presents, you know, at a birthday party. Look at these slaves. As they look into the face of their master, and they say, look at the words, 
Behold. Look at this, Master. Behold. Look at what we have for you. Count it up. We've doubled your investment for you. Not just cold words on a page. These are individuals that are happy for having been able to serve the Master and to give Him something in return. And the Master is equally delighted as His face lights up in approval. In our translation, we have the words, Well done. Those words can mean excellent, great, wonderful. The Master is just not saying, Well, that's good, boys. Let me have my money and we'll see you next time. No! This is great! This is wonderful. It's excellent. And the expression on the Master's face radiates with approval. And this brings the slaves great satisfaction in seeing the smile on the face of the Master. Now notice there's no jealousy among the faithful slaves. Get that? Somebody brings up the question. Well, if we're going to be Different degrees of rewards in heaven, or isn't there gonna, is not gonna open the door for jealousy? No jealousy here among these slaves. The slave who had the five talents was not lifted up in pride over the one who was entrusted with the two talents. And the one with the two did not begrudge the one who had the five. Therefore in heaven there'll be no arguing over who should have been, who will be the greatest. We will, each one, be enabled to enjoy pleasing our God, now listen, in the direct capacity to which our individual characters will allow us to do so. As vessels of various sizes are filled to their capacities, so believers in heaven will be filled to the capacity in which their individual characters have been developed. Some of you are wondering what all these glasses are up here for. We're not having a new kind of communion service. We're not doing away with the bread and the wine and going to water. But I want to use it as an illustration. I have here three glasses. One of them is a 12-ounce glass. One of them is an 8-ounce glass, and the other one is a 4-ounce glass. I have just filled them to the brim. I'm going to ask you a question. Which one of these three glasses is the most full? What's your answer? How many agree? How many of you agree they're all equally filled? How many of you think this one is more full than this one? Hmm? No? Okay. You passed the test well. If someone had said, well, the 12-ounce glass is more full, they would have been wrong. 
each glass is filled to its capacity, only some glasses have greater capacity than others. In like manner, all believers in heaven will enjoy God and the role in which He assigns for them. But some, Brother Asa, will be enabled to enjoy God more, and these will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the greater glass. This is the medium glass. This is the lesser glass. There will be a distinction when we arrive in glory of seeing who's the greatest. And there will be no debate about that even now. It's Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. And then we will see others of the apostles on the thrones next in honor next to Christ. And then the rest of us will fit in somewhere. The martyrs will be up there for what they've sacrificed. All will enjoy God equally. Brother Bob, but some are going to be given the capacity to enjoy Him more. And the ones that are given the less capacity are not going to be jealous. They're going to be able to see that person deserves that. Because the Master gave them that position. Some will be enabled to enjoy our Lord more, and these will be greatest in the kingdom. And as the book of Daniel describes, they will shine like the brighter stars in the heavens. Hmm? Go out and look at the galaxy. Not all the stars shine equally, but they're all related to various degrees of light bearing. Now, if you ask me what our talents are, then, Brother Gables, which God has entrusted to us. What do these talents represent? What's the analogy? Jesus called them things. The Master said, you've been faithful over a few things. I'll reward you by giving you higher degrees of responsibility and service over many things. You ask me, what are these things? I believe I would be correct in saying these things are our lives, our marriages, our children, our family, our money, our influence, our gifts, our time, our privileges to be able to be a member of Christ's church. Oh, don't get slothful in your church attendance. It's a great privilege to attend the worship services of God. And these things are our advantage of possessing and owning a Bible. Not everybody's been given that privilege. And our opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ. It's given you on behalf of Christ not only to believe into Him, but also to what? To suffer 
for Him. And if we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. So, Brother Clint, God has entrusted these various things to you and to me. I have not been given the gift to sing like you and Dana. And I'm grateful God's not going to judge me based upon my singing gifts. But, but to you too, I want to exhort you. Use those gifts. Don't get slothful in them. They may be taken from you. Sing for the glory of God. And in some capacity, you're going to be rewarded with a greater ability in the world to come. Don't get the idea that your singing is going to be taken away from you up there. You're going to be able to sing even better. Better and better. All of these make up our talents. Now here's the examining question. How faithful have we been with what God has entrusted to us? It's examination time, folks. It's grade 12. It's ready before you get your diploma now from this course on suffering. How faithful have you been with what God has entrusted you with? We must now work for the Master. For the night is coming when what? No man will be able to work anymore in this life. We must work faithfully, energetically for Him now. I call upon each of my hearers this morning to renew your dedication as I will do mine that we renew our dedication to Christ today so that we may see the smile on His face when He says, Well done! Great! Excellent! Wonderful! You good and faithful, dependable servants! You were entrusted with a few things now then, I'm going to reward you with many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And I believe my Lord will have a smile on His face when He can make those words spoken to His people. Enjoy my joy! <laughs> this is what makes me happy, the Lord says. And you have found that you can find no greater happiness than in doing what makes me happy. Now then, I'm going to give you greater happiness in the world to come. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I tell you, that doesn't want to make you be motivated to read your Bible more, to attend the church services more, to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better mother and father, a better child, a brother and sister, a better employee. I don't know of anything that does. Just to see the smile of the Master. Well done. So in summary, if we seriously believe that God's final purpose with men and women is to give them dominion over the entire created universe, 
And that beyond the purpose of atoning for our sins and reconciling us to God, that the ultimate purpose of Christ's cross work was to recreate and remake us in His image. This will manifest itself in a character which is self-giving and self-sacrificing. And the development of this character is produced in the fiery furnace of suffering, of suffering, hardship, trials, and yes, perhaps even martyrdom, if you're called upon to do it. It's my prayer that this understanding of human and Christian suffering will bring about dramatic, life-changing outlooks on the meaning of our lives here on this earth. I close with this hymn. It will be worth it all when we see who? Jesus. Dana, you know the rest of it? Life's what? Trials? will seem so small when we see Christ. Now you listen. One glimpse of His dear face, (laughs) all sorrow will erase. The funerals, the suffering, the deathbeds, the diseases, the being made fun of for being a Christian, all all of that will be erased. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. May God bless His Word. Let's close. Father, we pray that you take these concepts that we've worked through and work beyond just the theory involved, but make them very practical in our Christian life and experience. We bow before you as unprofitable servants, but servants who have a desire to serve you because we love you. Oh, increase our zeal to faithful devotion to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.